can have a seat right where you're at. Welcome. So glad that you're, you're here with us this morning. Um, uh, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 9 and 10 this morning. So if you have a Bible and a flip there, or if you want to go ahead and get the, uh, maybe an app on your phone or something like that uh, ready to go, by all means do that. Um, but the thing about John chapter 9 and 10, there's, there's several things, but uh, up front, just so you're aware, it's, it's really a misnomer to put a chapter ending there. The, the chapters and the verses, those numbers in your Bible were added well after the fact, right? That's a, that's a, a kind of a, a convenience thing to help us find it, but it's not something that was there in the original. So, so sometimes they can be really, really helpful, and sometimes they just kind of are this big wall or big speed bump, and that's what's going on with John chapter 9 and chapter 10. The other thing that I want us to think about as we're looking at this is this. Jesus is doing things, saying things, performing miracles in the context of parenthood. Okay, so if you're not a parent, think about as your relationship with your father, your mother, or think about the idealized version of those things, because we're going to talk about God, we're talking about the perfect father. But, but as we go through this, I want us to be thinking about that mindset, that, that understanding of parenthood, okay? Which brings us to our kind of our opening fun little question. We do this, trying to engage with our online audience, want to help do the same thing uh, with you guys here. But tell me this, how are you turning into your parents? You know, know, maybe here, show of hands in the room. How many of you would say you feel like you're turning into your parents in that moment where you look in the mirror and you're shocked that your mom or your dad is staring right back at you. Maybe you're like me, you got some more gray in there, you got some wrinkles, something like that. You, like, it, it's shocking, right? Or may, maybe for you, it's a, it's, a, it's a certain turn of phrase. Like you say something that only your dad would say, it doesn't make any sense, but you find yourself saying that over and over again. Or if you're like me, I don't know, I don't know what this says about me, but I'm finding myself walking around my house, turning off lights. I'm walking around, turning off lights. I'm going and looking at the thermostat, making sure that hasn't been touched or changed. I'm letting people know how early I got up. Why do I do that? My dad does that, but why do I do that? Why do I go around and kind of like slide that in a little brag, a little thing? No one cares, but that's what I do. Or maybe maybe you're you're one of those people, or you're, you're like me in this, that you realize I'm kind of turning into my parents and, and there's some really, there's a lot of good things. There's some annoying things, without a doubt, but there's some good things. And sometimes the annoying things are, are the jokes that I don't tell, right? Because I say to myself, well, would my dad tell that joke? If it's yes, then they, I need to back off. And so I had a joke about how a week ago we were throwing salt down on the sidewalks, and this week I put grass seed down because I'm turning into my father, right? Like all that kind of stuff. But we all kind of eventually turn into our parents, more or less, good, bad, or indifferent. And when thinking about that, thinking through that lens, that mindset of parenting, we're going to look at John chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, I want to transition into this, and just so you know kind of where we're headed, I want us to be thinking again, why is John writing this? And we know this from John chapter 20. This is at the end of his gospel. He kind of gives us the thesis statement, right? He gives us in summary, this is why I wrote this. In John chapter 20, verse 31 says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, if we leave that up there for a second, you'll see twice the English word or the English variant of belief, believe, believing. 
In the book of John, the Greek root word there appears 98 times. If you say that sounds like a lot, it is. The big theme of the Gospel of John is belief. He is writing this so that we may believe. Now, I don't want to go verse by verse on everything we're covering today because it's a lot. So let me summarize John chapter 9. Remember that idea that we're trying to look at this through the view, through the, through the perspective of a parent. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't shy away from hard, hard things. It doesn't shy away from the realities of life. It, it, it brings us here in chapter 9 confronting with this tragic idea of a parent suffering, not because they're suffering, but because their kid is suffering. The tragic idea, the tragic situation where a parent has to wonder, did I do something to cause this? Could I have prevented this? In John chapter 9, we meet a man who was born blind. It's very specific that this is a man who was born blind. Now, in that day, in that time frame, in that understanding of God, the religious leaders would say that this must be punishment for some sort of generational sin or something that this man did. And the fact that he was born blind really confused all of that. And so there was all these moments where religious leaders and opponents of Jesus are going to try to trick him. They're going to ask him a question, a theology question, a question about the law, and try to trick him. And in doing so, they think they've got a perfect case. Here's a man who was born blind. They go and they say, teacher, is this man blind because of something he did or something that his parents did? Did he do something wrong even though he was born blind or was it his parents' fault? It kind of belies this understanding I think we all have, right? If something goes wrong, there must be a reason for it. If something goes right, there must be a reason for it. We don't want to just have the effect. We want to understand the cause. And and so there's this very basic question is being thrown out here. Here's a tragic case. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? The Bible is asking questions. What we read in the Gospel of John, what we read elsewhere, is asking questions that we would ask. Questions that that we are are almost forced to ask. ask. Why does this happen? happen well jesus ends up healing this man and he does it in a very visceral odd way he basically hocks a holy loogie into his palm and he gets some dirt and he makes a paste with mud and he rubs it on the guy's eyes which in early 21 2020 adjacent that is crazy to me right like like that is nuts but but jesus heals him doing this it's it's interesting that we see all these different ways that jesus heals there's not simply a a pattern there's not simply a rote formula but he heals this man and an uproar comes about an uproar basically because jesus tends to kind of set these things up where he heals someone on saturday on the sabbath and this was breaking religious law and so there's all these questions about religious leaders kind of coming at jesus and saying you can't do this and they're going to the man who is healed and saying, you are a lawbreaker you have broken law god is now mad at you because someone healed you it's this notion that well something happened what was the cause what's behind it and was that the right cause I don't know about you, but maybe this is pride, maybe this is arrogance, maybe what, I don't know what it is, 
But I have a hard time accepting things that I didn't earn. I have a hard time accepting things that I didn't earn. I, I like to do this. I catch myself doing this where I will qualify something that was given to me freely. And the first job I had, it was a, a great church, and one of the incredible things about this church, uh, among many, was that the pastors had a parsonage, had a house that came with it. And it, it was right next, right across from the street, and all the, I was a youth pastor, all the teenagers knew where I lived, and that brought up all kinds of other issues, but it was an incredible gift. Like, to be 22, first job out of college, and they give you a house? And I found myself telling my friends this, my friends who are, who are back home with their parents, who are living in an apartment, who are, who are struggling or, or, or not. And I found myself kind of qualifying everything. Well, it's not very good. It's really, really outdated. And it's really drafty. And it's just like, why can't I just accept a gift? Why do I have to simply say, hey, it, it's great and it's good and I didn't do anything to deserve it, but I've got to downplay it. I've got to make it seem like it's less. Conversely, when something bad happens, I find myself saying, what did I do wrong? I, I do that thing where I look back five, six, seven moves, and I think, where was the mistake? How did I get myself in this position? And I go backwards, and I'm thinking back, and I'm trying to fix it there, which, of course, is fruitless. So these religious leaders are coming to this man saying, what caused this healing? What is going on? What is going on is that you have broken the law. And you have upset God. You are an insult to God. And what we see as chapter 9 ends and chapter 10 begins is Jesus responding to this. Okay, so notice this. Jesus is talking about a man who was born blind, helpless, was not his fault, who was then healed. There's all this argument about who is responsible, who actually caused this horrible thing. He is healed, and now the conversation is, well, this whole thing is rotten because of how it led up, of what happened getting there. And Jesus goes from talking about this man that was born blind to talking about sheep. John chapter 10. We're going to read 19 verses of this, so I'd encourage you to follow along with your Bibles, with the app, or on the screen as well. So Jesus is having an opportunity where he's going to respond to all these critics after healing this man. Verse 1. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees do not understand what he was telling them. Verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. 
So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You hear this. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And, they, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. When Jesus is done. And look what verse 19 says. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. All right, we, there's a lot there to cover, but, but again, see that big picture. We go from talking about parents and kids to a very paternal understanding of things, the shepherd who's taking care of the sheep, and then Jesus goes and then talks more about his relationship with the Father and how they are actually one. Well, let's start with the sheep pen. The, the first thing that we begin to look at that Jesus talks about. Now, the sheep pen was a communal corral. This is a place where multiple flocks would be kept overnight or, or as they were being sheared or, or, or what, what have you. This is a place where they would come and, and there would be a gate, there would be a gatekeeper, and this would, be a place, this would be a place where the shepherd would go. But these communal areas, these sheep pens were, were chaotic, understandably so, right? It would be very much like the temple courts that Jesus is speaking in. The temple courts were just outside of the temple itself, and that was the furthest place in that a Gentile, a non-Jew, could go. And so out there in the temple courts, milling around, you would have markets, you have people selling things, you have people coming and going. It would be chaotic. But the shepherd is the one who leads the sheep out. But the shepherd doesn't lead the sheep out just into safety or certainty. The shepherd goes on ahead, leading the sheep into life. Sure, there's uncertainty. Sure, there's, there's risk. There's wolves. There's all sorts of threats that may come. But the shepherd leads the sheep forward. So the sheep pen is, is kind of we're bringing order out of this chaos. The second metaphor that Jesus uses, he says, I am the gate. I am the gate. Now, I think this is really, really important. This is really, really important. Jesus begins using relational language. He says that anyone who comes through me, that you must come through me. There must be that connection. There must be that relationship. And he contrasts that to those who would sneak in and steal. But the gate is what we must do to have life. I, I know that we can have conversations about this to we're blue in the face and i know i've participated in those conversations but there's this fundamental question to following jesus right this fundamental question of saying well what do i have to do to get to heaven what do i have to do to experience eternal life and some traditions will talk about about how we need to take a step of faith whether it be baptism or praying a certain prayer or being confirmed and i think all of those are good but i think all of those are also extra I think what's going on here, I think what John is laying out is that belief is the only thing that matters. That belief is the only thing that matters. There's questions of obedience and what you do after that, but ultimately it's about belief. And then Jesus also talks about this, having, having other sheep, and they'll call them out. And so I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I'm confident of this. Jesus 
is the gate. If we want to go through this, if we want to be in eternal life, we want to be saved, whatever it is, it's through Jesus. I don't understand. I'm not going to begin to put limits on that of what that might look like and how Jesus would do that with you or with someone else, but I would say this, that Jesus is the way forward. The third metaphor that Jesus uses is the the, I am the good shepherd. And notice that he's saying, I am a lion. This is God language. This is the language that God revealed himself to Moses with. This is language of talking about majesty and the fact that he is, is God and the creator. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd is one who leads the sheep out into a flourishing, full, abundant life. See, I think sometimes, let's go back to that parent metaphor. I want my kids to flourish. But I also want them to be safe. I want them to, to have experiences, but I don't want them to get hurt. I, I want them to, to experience success, but I don't want them to have to risk. I, I want so much for my, my kids, but there's that piece of me that wants to hold so tight, that wants to control things, right? I think what Jesus is laying out here is that, that this good shepherd, this good shepherd who's leading us out, there is no promise of security. It says the good shepherd will fight off the wolves, fight off the enemies, but there's no promise that everything will go just fine. But there is a promise of full life. And notice in verse 19, the Pharisees cannot handle this. The Pharisees cannot even begin to handle It leads to more division. Why? Why does this, 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 this metaphor, this story about sheep and the sheep pen and the great shepherd and this declaration that that is who Jesus is, why does this create division? I think it's because the religious leaders were not expecting this. They were not expecting the Messiah to show up this way. They were not expecting this. They were not even wanting this. They were wanting something else. And Jesus comes along and interrupts this. Jesus comes along and interrupts this. If we go down a little bit further, we get to John chapter 10, verse 24, and it's, it's a time jump. It's one of those, it's like when you're watching the favorite show and a new episode comes on or the next season, there's this black screen, it says six months later or whatever it is. Well, here it could be three months later. We go from the fall to the winter. We go to the feast of the tabernacles where we celebrate the fact that God provided in the wilderness and they kind of camp out and the kind of this whole thing to Hanukkah, okay? So the eight crazy nights, right, where God provides and and, 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 and gives the Jewish people a kind of an identity there. So it's winter time, it's Hanukkah, and the thing about Hanukkah is that it has all of these martial, these, these militaristic tones to it, right? Because Hanukkah celebrates some Jewish nationalist leaders who stood up to foreign powers, who, who held out, who, who fought people off. And so the religious leaders are, are kind of tying Hanukkah to this idea the Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah who's going to come is going to look like our heroes of Hanukkah. He's going to be a military leader. He's going to be someone who fights off the enemy. And, and we see this here in, in verse 24 really clearly that, that they, are, they are frustrated. There's division, and they come to Jesus, and they essentially say, would you just tell us who you are already? Would you just tell us what you're about already would you just just show us what we're supposed to do would you just explain this for me I don't, I don't know about you but i have those moments all the time right 
I have those moments all the time where, where I was like, God, make sense of this, right? Make sense of this. Uh, show me what I'm supposed to be doing here. How am I supposed to live? And I thought about this. Well, why, why is it that God is not clear? And I thought about my kids. They're eight and they're six and they're cuter and they're smarter than your kids. It's just fact, right? But if I go to them and I say, well, just tell me about your day. My son, I've got to pull out. I've got to ask follow-up stuff. My daughter, the moment I pause, she just starts talking. And gender stereotypes or whatever, notwithstanding, but she loves to talk. She's extroverted. She wants to, to relate. She wants to tell you about everything that happened. She wants to tell you about what her friends did, what she had for lunch, and what she did outside, and all of this stuff. If I were to interrupt her and say, well, just tell me what happened. Stop, stop with all the detail. Stop, stop with all the stories. I don't care what, what this person did or what that person did. Just, just tell me, what did you score on the test? Just tell me, tell me what, what happened at lunch. Just tell me, tell me that one thing. I miss it. I, I miss all this relationship. I miss this connection. I miss this growth, this development. When we go to God and say, just tell me what happened, I think we're almost like that moment where we're the frustrated parent where we say, just tell me what happened. And God's saying, no, 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 just, just pay attention. Just settle in. This is a relationship. I'm connecting. We're moving forward. Because here's the thing. Just like these Pharisees missed Jesus because they weren't expecting it. I think, I, I know this is true in my life. I think this is true in your life. I miss Jesus. I miss the Spirit's work because I'm not looking for it. I think we miss Jesus because we're not looking for Jesus. Now, I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, if you grew up in church at all. And in some, some instances, I know there's been times where I felt like, felt like, you know, everything got blamed or everything got assigned a spiritual thing. And I don't think everything is, is like that, but I think we miss Jesus sometimes. I think we miss opportunities to love and to show compassion. I think we miss opportunities to speak truth. And just like these Pharisees, just like these religious leaders, they weren't expecting Jesus and they missed him. But look what happens in verse 25. Jesus responds to this whole question of, would you just tell us already, this whole demand, just tell us already what's going on. Verse 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He lays out the gospel here. Jesus lays out the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, if you don't kind of understand this, this is so, so key. The gospel is this. You and I are broken. The loving, perfect God of the universe came down and made a way for us to connect with that perfect, loving God of the universe. And all you have to do, in the words of John, is believe. You don't have to do things a certain way. You don't have to be a certain type of person. All you have to do is believe. You don't earn it. You haven't deserved it. There is no cause and effect that you have control over. This is something that is just given. Just as a good parent wants to give good gifts to kids who don't deserve them. 
God wants to give us good gifts. It gives us this ultimate gift. And this relationship that God is envisioning, this relationship that God is envisioning with the gospel goes against everything we have to understand, how we live in our daily lives and work and relationships and everything you can imagine. Because in our daily lives, I think things come down to three things. I, I think how we understand our relationships, how we understand working with other people, it comes down to three things. And that's identity, performance, and knowledge. Identity. This is the issue the Pharisees have with Jesus. Who are you? Who are you? I mean, I mean how many times in our lives do we, do we kind of categorize people, right? Well, who'd you vote for? What, what do you think about this? You know, we do mundane things. Well, who do you root for? We, got, we kind of put people in different contexts. And, and seemingly, we're trying to, to kind, of, kind of get things down. If I, know, if I get you to answer one or two or three questions, I know enough about you to write you off or say that you're on my team. This identity piece, this identity piece, this is how we define who's in and who's out. And Jesus comes along and says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your background doesn't matter your parentage i have come for all and jesus doesn't fit the the preconceived notion the preconceived identity of the messiah of the religious leaders that had that day so identity is the first one we understand the world and the people around us the second thing is performance that simple question what have you done or what are you going to do for me can you do this can you can you perform this so the Pharisees get all upset at Jesus for breaking the laws, for, 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 for essentially performing poorly, for being somebody who doesn't fit in their whole scheme. And the third thing is, is knowledge. What do you know? As we talked about before, Jesus doesn't kinda, isn't part of that system. He hasn't come up under an established rabbi, and so he is outside of that, and therefore he is, he is seen as somebody who needs to be kept away. He's not the right person. He doesn't know enough. The gospel comes along. The gospel comes along and says it doesn't matter about your identity. It doesn't matter about your performance. It doesn't matter about your knowledge if you believe you're in. It, it doesn't matter. I, I, I have real issue. I have real issue. And I, I, I hope I don't offend anybody with this. I, I really don't want to. But I have real issue with the, 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 a lot of the conversation around identity today. I, 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 I don't want to offend anybody, but the conversation around identity usually involves sexuality and gender, but also involves all sorts of other numerous things, including political persuasion or partisan approach, right? And there's, there's such this elevation that I've got to discover my identity and all that, and what I read in the gospel, what I read in the gospel is a loving God who cries out, I want to make you new. I want to give you a new identity in Christ, I want to give you a new identity in Christ. I want you to be seen first and foremost and only as a follower of me, as a son or a daughter of the king. All those other things, those are, those are, those are valid things. That's part of the experience of life. Those are things that we could talk about and go for. But if we can get this right, if we can die on that hill, the identity in Christ, I think we can get somewhere. I think we can begin to move towards that full life. So identity doesn't matter. Your performance doesn't matter. We, we grade each other. We score each other. We, we kind of compare, compare ourselves. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. If you've been from day one or in the last five minutes, you're in. 
If you've got it all figured out and you've been the most pious, holy person, great if you believe you're in, or if you're somebody with a checkered past and a record a mile long, if you believe you're in, knowledge. Whenever I talk to somebody about, about taking a step of faith, they, they've come to faith, they believe in Jesus, and they're, they're, they're kind, of, kind of saying, well, now what do I do? We talk about baptism, we talk about involvement in the church, and, and oftentimes they'll say, well, I don't know enough. And I, I'll just say, like, neither do I. And of course you don't. Because there is no test. There is no knowledge test that you have to get in. Because ultimately, the gospel says that you don't deserve it, but you're getting it anyway. This is the good, loving, perfect Father who's getting incredible, life-saving, eternal gifts for kids who don't deserve it. Have you ever given a gift to a kid who deserved it? No. You give a gift to a kid because you want to see joy in their lives. You want to see, see them have fun. Sure, they're good kids, but do they earn that? Have they, have they really contributed that much? No. But as a good parent, as a loving parent, as a loving aunt, as a loving uncle, as a loving whatever, you want to give those good gifts. It's about belief over and over and over again. I think John is doing something. Remember, John is writing this gospel late in life. He's kind of realizing he's of that first generation of Jesus followers, and the rest of them are kind of dying off. He's like, i got to write some stuff down. i, I got to capture this. And, and the early church is growing and expanding. And, and there's something that was happening there where the Greek word for the early church, the Greek word for the church is this word ekklesia, which literally trans out, translates as the called out ones. The called out ones. Jesus, the good shepherd, calls out his sheep, not to another pen where they're nice and safe, but out into the world of a life and life to the full. And notice this. In verse 14 of chapter 10, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Look at that. He talks all over and over again about my sheep, about calling my sheep out, that he's laying down his life for my sheep. I'm sorry, he's, he's calling, calling his people out, and he'll, he'll make them up. Notice what, who he lays down his life for. He lays down his life for the sheep, for all, for all. The gift of the gospel is not an exclusive gift. It is an inclusive gift. It is there for all. It is there for all. If you continue to read the balance of chapter 10, you'll see how there's more opposition and there's, there's more conversation that Jesus has, this, this longer discourse where he's talking about how he and the Father are one. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a rich depth uh, experience to read that. But you'll also know over and over and over again, you'll see that, that word, that root word of belief, except so often it's unbelief about people who are responding against it. And here at this moment, at the end of chapter 10, we have what you would call the end of Jesus' public ministry from here on. We've got a lot more. But everything we have from here is in a small group. It's Jesus and the disciples before we get to Passion Week and the cross. And so I look at this in this way. I think that John is using the words and the actions of Jesus to declare something here at the end of this phase of his ministry. 
I think what John is saying is that Jesus is pleading with you to believe. He is pleading with you to believe. I, I know some of your guys' stories. And I know stories of other people. And I know my story as a parent. I know stories of parents who have done everything for their kids. Who have made incredible sacrifices. And I know countless more who would do anything for their kids. I know kids, I know parents who have bailed kids out of prison, as that was a loving thing to do. I know parents who didn't bail their kids out of prison, because that was a loving thing to do. I know parents who have welcomed kids back into homes that was not convenient or by the plan. I know parents who have, who have changed lives, work, places where they lived, all for their kids. And I think... What Jesus is laying out here is that the good father of the universe wants to give you a gift that you don't deserve. And Jesus is coming at this. He's saying, look, I healed this guy who did nothing wrong. His parents did nothing wrong. And I gave him this incredible gift of full life, the ability to see. And I'm, I'm describing myself as this good shepherd who's going to go to that chaotic sheep pen. And I'm going to call my sheep out into life and life to the full. And I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep, for all of the sheep. I'm going to do these things because the Father and I are one. The good Father who loves comes down, gives his life so that you and I may live. I'm going to invite the band to come up. They're going to get situated. And while they do that, and while they do that, and before they lead us into this last song, I want you to do something. I want you to do something, and maybe you need to close your eyes. If you're willing to, go ahead and do that. And as you do, I want you to bring to mind some of the best memories you have with your parents. Or maybe you, your story doesn't have that. So bring to mind the best memories you have of the adults who were so pivotal in your life. Aunt, uncle, coach, teacher. Bring to mind these images, these, these moments. Maybe it was a holiday. Maybe it was just a mundane moment. Maybe it was a time where your parents blessed you. Maybe it was a time where your parents said something that sticks with you. Bring that to mind. You know how much your mom, your dad, that adult who is taking that time, who is giving you that gift, who is expressing that love, you know how much they loved you. The God of the universe somehow loves you more than that. You can open your eyes. The God of the universe somehow loves you more than that. It's absurd. It doesn't make sense. It is beyond our comprehension. But the God of the universe somehow loves you more than that. If I could paraphrase somebody I have no business being anywhere in the same zip code with, the, the Apostle John, the God of the universe comes down. 
And He is the Word. He is the source. And He gives the people the ability to see what God is like, to hear what God is like. And He somehow does these incredible moments where He's healing people. And He's reaching across these lines and these barriers. And he, and he fights for justice as he flips over tables and he reveals himself with love to one of the guys who was in charge of those tables. He goes to a woman whose past is just checkered. And he invites her to become a preacher to go and tell her story. We read about a man who was disabled. people would just walk right by. And he was in agony. He was desperate. And Jesus comes along and invites him to stand. We read. We see the God of the universe coming down into our mess and saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not the full life. I'm going to goes to the cross and does just that.